This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's uh, text is Galatians uh, 2.20. It's a quickly, quickly recognized text, and it's a well-loved uh, verse in Scripture. And this week, and even last week, as I studied uh, this verse more and more, I realized that my relationship uh, with my wife is a good illustration for my relationship to this verse uh, over the years. Uh, almost 16 years ago, I asked Trisha Tucker to marry me. And I, at that time, like most newlyweds to be, thought that Trisha was the most precious and beautiful woman uh, in the world. Not the most precious and beautiful woman that would agree to marry me, but just flat out the most precious and beautiful woman in the world. There were very obvious qualities about her that attracted me to her. But that said, truth be told, I, like most newlyweds, had a simple and surface understanding of this woman I married. Over time, I began uh, to discover that Trisha was complex, and in fact, uh, in Trisha, there were multiple paradoxes uh, that made, me, made her harder and harder over time uh, to understand. And so, truth be told, uh, like a lot of newlyweds or a lot of second-year marrieds, I began to feel awfully confused in my relationship to her, and I began to feel unsettled in that relationship. Uh, I, I, uh, I began to realize uh, that I was going to have to press into these paradoxes that were my bride if I was really going to know and love her, and, and that it would not be okay for me to stay on the surface and love the idea of her that I had come to over a few years. Uh, she was soft as silk when I married her, but I also discovered in time that she was tough as nails. She wasn't just utterly gracious, but she was also able to be brutally honest when the time was right. Uh, she didn't just accept me for who I was, she accepted God's vision for me in the future, and that acceptance of her made me feel safe, but that reality of her expecting me to go somewhere was very uncomfortable. And as I said, I often had the choice in our relationship where I could either dive in and, and think about the complexities of this woman and the paradoxes within this woman, or I could stay on the surface and love my comfort and love my simple view of this woman. Not always, but occasionally I had the wisdom and the courage and the faith to endeavor to know my bride, to actually know her and not my dreams of her. And I found that in addition to the beautiful simplicity that was my bride, there was great benefit to understanding the complexities and the paradoxes to the extent that I was able. You see, with some of us, when we get beyond the, the simple, when we get beyond the surface, with some of us, including me, value and beauty decrease. But the reason that Trisha is such a great illustration, I think, for the verse we're studying today is that as I got to know her, I'm so fortunate and I feel so blessed to say that her, her beauty and her value in my heart increased as I really got to know her. And so that, for me, illustrates my relationship to Galatians 2.20. I think for many years, many, many years, I had this very simple view of this verse where aspects of this verse that are true made the verse very precious and very beautiful to me. But then last week, as I began to really study Galatians 2.20, some complexities jumped out at me. Uh, some paradoxical realities confronted me. There were mysteries in the text that I still haven't figured out. And I had the choice. I could be confused and unsettled and run for comfort, or I could dig in and try and see this text as more beautiful and more precious and more valuable than I had before. I promise you, even if this is your life verse and you have thought of it for a long time, that choice is in front of you today as well. Uh, 
Will you rest in what is simple or will you dive in to what is complex and beautiful? And so in a moment, I'm, I'm gonna read God's word. I'm gonna read Galatians 2.20. And as I read it, I actually want you to enjoy the simple truths. There are incredible simple truths in this text. And at the same time, I want you to look for three paradoxical realities. Three paradoxical realities. These will serve as our outline uh, this morning. By the way, a paradox uh, is a statement that seems contradictory until you inspect it further and realize that all that is said is true. So Tricia is soft as silk and tough as nails. That's a paradox. On the surface, it appears to be self-contradictory, but when you dig in and know the woman, you know it's absolutely true. So as I read, listen for a paradox about you and me as individuals. Listen for a paradox about Jesus Christ. Listen for a paradox about faith. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. It's corporate prayer of illumination. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So first, something paradoxical about us as individuals. Here it is. You're going to see it on the screen behind me. We're both dead and alive. We're both no longer living and now living. Uh, We're no longer living. Look at the second sentence in verse 20. It is no longer I who live. And at the same time, we are now living. Very redundantly, third sentence, in case you missed it and thought you became a robot. This life I now live in the flesh, and by that, Paul just means the body. This life I now live in the body, I live by faith. So which is it, dead or alive? No longer living or living. Of course, both are true, but how, okay? This is where it's very helpful to know Paul's teaching uh, in Galatians, later in the book, and in other New Testament letters. Let me summarize it for you. In summary, Paul's old self, his sinful nature, the old man has been crucified with Christ. It no longer lives. In Paul's new self, the regenerate man, the new man, the man that came to life when God saved him, is the life he now lives in the body. At the beginning of verse 20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, we know that Paul is referring to the Paul that existed before his conversion because Paul says specifically that in Galatians 5, 24. He says that it's his sinful nature that has been crucified. Paul also uses this same verb in Romans 6, 6, this verb to crucify with. It's actually a very rare verb. It's to crucify with. The only other time Paul uses it is Romans 6, 6, and he's more specific. Listen to what he says. We know that the old self was crucified with Christ. And now I know that this is complex if you've never heard it before, but you have to stay with me. The apostle Paul, when he thought of himself, when he thought of us as individual Christians, he at least thought of us in these two ways. That in us, there is an old self, and in us, there is a new self. 
For Paul, the old self is rebellious, self-centered, self-glorifying, self-promoting. It is that part in us that sins. For Paul, the new self is God-centered, selfless, loving, and humble. This is really important to catch. Paul will talk about the old self as being both dead and dying. Paul will talk about the new self as being both alive and increasing in life. So in Colossians 3, for example, Paul will tell us in verse 3, you have died with Christ, speaking about the old self. But then in verse 5, Paul will say, put to death what is earthly in you. So which is it? Both the old self died, verse 3, and we need to continue to put the old self to death, verse 5. In Colossians 3, for example, Paul will say that the new self is completely alive in Jesus, so alive that God sees us as we are in the new heavens and the new earth. And yet we're told to continually put on the new self in verse 12. If you have this in mind, look at the start of verse 20 very closely. Notice how it does not say, I was crucified with Christ. That's because in the Greek, it's not a simple past tense. It's what's known as a perfect tense. In the Greek, this is so important. You have to get this to understand the Apostle Paul. I wouldn't do this to you if it wasn't so important. In the Greek, the perfect tense verb is used when something in the past is developing in the present. It is used when something in the past has a very significant impact on the present. Not, I was crucified. I have been, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is a past action that is developing in and has a significant impact in the present. If you, like me, memorize Galatians 2.20 in the King James Version, the authorized version, the version that I will still go back to in my prayers, you memorize this as I am, present tense, crucified, past tense. That's how the King James Version used to translate these verbs. They would translate something in the present and something in the past to show you it's not simply in the past. When Paul talks about the old self and the new self, he loves to use this perfect tense. You can read Romans 6, Romans 7, Colossians 3, Galatians 2, 2 Corinthians 5. He loves to use this verb that happened in the past that has an impact in or is developing in the present. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, some of y'all's favorite verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see the paradox about individual Christians? If you're a believer, if, you're, if you believe that you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, if that is the belief of your head and in your heart, Paul's saying you're both dead and alive. He's also saying you're both dying and coming to life. Paul is saying without multiple personalities, without thinking of yourself as two people, the core of you is new and growing. It needs to be nurtured and fed. The old you is sinful and it is dying, it's dead and dying and it needs to be, according to Colossians 3, mortified and starved and stripped away like clothing. It's as if individual Christians are a massive field of dollar weeds and Bermuda grass. Think of yourself as 10,000 acres of dollar weed and Bermuda grass. Something ugly and something beautiful. Something unwanted and something desirable. Paul says you're both in this life. But Paul says the weed and feed is being applied and it's working. The weeds are dying, the grass is growing. If you use another analogy, the one that Jesus used for the kingdom of God, he says it's like yeast and dough. 
Jesus taught that the kingdom is now present and it's not yet present, or excuse me, it's not yet consummated. So Jesus would speak like it's here, but it's not here. And so since the kingdom is in us, the same is true of us. Paul would say the leaven is in the dough, the new self is in you, and it is increasing. But Paul would say the dough is not yet fully leavened. And so some of you are saying, not all of you, some of you are saying, that's very interesting, make it matter. Let me try. Think back to the context of Galatians 2. Paul's opponents have said that Paul's theology makes Jesus Christ a servant of sin, verse 17. Paul's opponents said of his theology, if justification, if being declared righteous before God and by God has nothing to do with what I do and has everything to do with God's grace, if God's love and acceptance of me is given to me apart from my works, if it's completely unconditional, if that's true, people are gonna send more, not less. People are gonna use Jesus, not love Jesus. People are gonna see Jesus as this get out of hell free card and not one to be obeyed. We know because Romans 6, Paul twice says this same accusation against his theology. He says it in verse 17. The accusation is this, if justification is based on God's choice and utter grace, and if it's not based on any work in me at all, I have no incentive to obey. I I have no incentive to not do whatever I want. And Paul says in verse 17, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. May it never be. A thousand times no. And then he begins to explain in verses 18 through 20 why Christ is not a servant of sin. We're skipping 18 and 19. We're gonna come back later. We began last week to look into verse 20 to answer the question of how, how is it that, that Jesus is not a servant of sin? But before he gets into verse 20, look at what he says at the very start of verse 20. This is the very first reason of why it's absolutely crazy to think that Jesus is a servant of sin. Why it's crazy to think post-conversion you can sin more than pre-conversion. Paul says the old sinful me was crucified with Jesus. It's dying even now. May it never be. Certainly not. Inconceivable. Because I'm both dead and dying and because I'm alive and coming to life, it is inconceivable to think that I could sin more after Jesus saves me and after God justifies me. Listen, the Bible doesn't say that we're sinless. The Bible doesn't say that we can be perfect in this life, but the Bible is clear. Christians get better. From the moment they're converted to the moment they die, Christians sin less, not more. Christians rebel less and submit more. Christians worship self less and worship God more. Christians use and objectify people less and they promote and serve people more. This is what the Bible says. Not that we're perfect, not that we can be perfect in this life, but the Bible says you're getting better. And so you say, I I see the paradox I see how Paul assumes that part of him is dead and part of him is life, part part of him is dying and part of him is coming to life, but how can I know I'm getting better and not worse? The fact of the matter is, when I look at my life, oftentimes I don't think I'm getting better. Also, there are people in my life who would never, ever say that I'm actually getting better. I can feel in me the old and the new. Now that you describe it, I see that that is true. But how can you make this blanket statement about good news and progress? Second paradox, a paradoxical reality about Jesus Christ. It is this, should be on the screen behind me. Jesus died in the past 
and is alive in the present. Now think about that paradox. Usually it's said of people who have died that they were alive in the past and are dead in the present. Paul says the exact opposite. Let's look at it. In verse 20, Paul says that he was crucified with Jesus. And he's alluding to Jesus' physical death on the cross. If you look at the last phrase in verse 20, Paul says, Jesus loved me and he gave himself up for me. I don't have time now, but if you were to walk through any of the four gospels, if you were to read of Jesus' arrest and trial and abuse and crucifixion, if you were to read through that, you would read of all these various characters that, quote, gave him up or delivered him up, same Greek word, that delivered him up or gave him up to crucifixion. Judas delivered him up. The Jewish elders delivered him up. The scribes gave him up. The chief priest gave him up. The high priest gave him up. Pilate gave him up. Over and over, it's being said that people are giving Jesus up. But Paul says here what Jesus himself just said in John 10. Jesus says the crucifixion was ultimately about me giving myself up for you. Jesus says on a human level, all those people were giving me up. But I was giving myself up because the Father sent me to do exactly that. And so Jesus died in the past, but Paul also said that Jesus is alive in the present. Look in the middle of the verse. It is no longer I who live, Paul speaking, but literally and simply, Christ lives in me. So this is a paradox. A seemingly contradictory statement that in reality is true. A dead person living. But it's not a hard paradox when you begin to understand that the core uh, doctrine in the church is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died. History clearly shows it. Jesus came to life. History clearly testifies to it. Jesus ascended to the Father. He now is in heaven. When he was explaining this reality to his disciples, they started to freak out because they needed Jesus so desperately. And in John 14 and in John 15, we hear Jesus saying to them, listen, it's a whole lot better for you if I go to the Father. If I stay here, it's worse for you. If I go to the Father, I will send my spirit to live among you as a community and in you as individuals. Jesus, past tensed, died for our justification. Jesus, present tense, lives for our sanctification. That is our growth in character. Now this part is mysterious. This is not a paradox that you're gonna press into and fully understand. This is a mystery that you have to embrace. Not only is the old self dying and being pushed out over time, not only is the new self expanding from the core to your extremities, but also Jesus dwells in you, and Jesus lives through you. Paul, verse 17, says, is Jesus a servant of sin? No. The old is dying. The new is coming to life. The righteous Jesus didn't just die to forgive me and stay dead. The righteous Jesus didn't just die to forgive me and go on up to heaven and tell me to do the best I can. The righteous Jesus was raised to life so that by his Holy Spirit, he could live inside of me. How can you know that the old is losing and that the new is winning? How can you know that it's not just two realities wrestling in you? Sometimes the old is winning, sometimes the new is winning. Because the victory is not based on the new self. The victory is based on Jesus himself living inside of you. That's why. It's not about you having a good or a bad day. It's about Jesus having his day. 
Paul directly states, and he constantly assumed that although Jesus died, Jesus is now alive and Jesus lives in us. He didn't just die for us to make us uh, acceptable and righteous before God. He was risen from the grave so that he could live in us and actually make us righteous. You don't have to change for God to love you. It says he died for you. But Christians will change. He lives in you. The old dying self is not stronger than the risen Christ. That's how I can guarantee you that you're growing. The new self is stronger than the old self, but only because, as Paul says, it's not you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. I was meditating this week on one of the names given for the third person of the Trinity, another mystery that you can press into and never fully understand. I was meditating on the name Holy Spirit. I was meditating on the fact that it's astounding biblically that I didn't die when the Holy Spirit took up residence inside of me. It's astounding because I'm so sinful. The Bible speaks of God's holiness as a vicious holiness. It seeks out and it snuffs out and it eradicates evil. A holiness that like a warrior takes territory and pushes boundaries. I was reminded that in his death, Jesus really did pay for my sin. He gave himself for me. The evidence of that fact is that I didn't get smoked when the Holy Spirit purchased real estate in my heart. But also, I was encouraged because the Holy Spirit's job within me is to make me more holy. When the Holy Spirit, if I could speak tongue in cheek, checks in with Jesus on the progress in my heart, the metric that Jesus asks him about in that annual review is holiness. It is not my happiness. It is not how my business is going. It is not how my kids are doing. It's holiness. The Holy Spirit is hell-bent on making us holy. The Holy Spirit submits to the Father and to the Son. He is sent by both of them into your heart and his job is holiness. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. You can, you can hang your hat on this. That he who in you began a good work will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 2.13, God works in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. This is why Paul is not afraid of Christians doing more and more of what they, quote, want after a grace-based justification. Because Jesus gives you a new heart. And then Jesus moves into that heart. And Jesus says, I'll take care of the problem of you wanting other things. I'm gonna give you my wants and my desires. You go ahead and do everything you want. Even in Romans 7, where Paul is talking about the old and the, and the new and the battle and the frustration and the hardship of indwelling sin, when he talks about sin this way, he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want. And Paul is saying, at the core of me is brand new wants. And Paul says, if someone at their core truly wants sin more than righteousness, that person has never met Jesus. That person may have heard some theories about Jesus on a whiteboard, but they've never encountered the almighty creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all who moves into the neighborhood known as your heart and begins to change you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is one of my favorite verses because it makes me feel so hopeful. 
when I am thinking about my sin and when I am confessing sin in my life, I love to read verses about forgiveness. I love to read verses about my position of righteousness in Jesus. I love to read verses like 2 Corinthians 3.18 that talks about my growth in righteousness because Jesus is present in me. Listen to, listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, all, if you've read Corinthians, you know these are some heinous people. Paul says, we all are being transformed. Present tense, passive verb. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The word transformed is, as I've told you before, the Greek word from which we get metamorphosis. He says it's a gradual process that takes a caterpillar to a butterfly. Metamorphosis is a thousand little indistinguishable changes that you cannot see in the moment, but that you cannot deny over time. Paul said that kind of transformation, that's the work Jesus is doing in you. In Colossians 3, that long text about the old self and the new self, Paul says in verse 10, the new self is being renewed, being renovated. Another, again, another present passive. Someone not you is doing something about you. Someone not you is doing something beautiful in you. Let me say this before we move on. This getting better, this growth, this sanctification, it is from God's point of view. I know in my life when I think day to day, I often don't see this transformation. I know in my life when I think about that particular besetting sin, I often don't see transformation. I know in my life when I think about a particular relationship, do you have those people that you just can't stop sinning when you're around them? I do. And when I'm around them, I don't see this transformation. But this promise and this transformation is from God's point of view, not my point of view. If you think about the, the analogy of the massive however many acre field I made it up to be, when I focus in on one little acre of my life, I get depressed and I think about my lack of growth and, and I think about the fact there's not enough grass and I get really frustrated about the, pro, the proliferation of the weeds and I can really become quite pessimistic and cynical and I can even begin to say, I wonder if I'm a Christian at all. But the Bible tells me that from God's perspective on my whole life, in every arena of my life, according to his sovereign choice and design, he's advancing his work in me. He's making me more beautiful. God, do something about the anger. Oh no, it's keeping you humble. We're working on humility right now. God, do something about that relationship. Do you know how prayerful you are around that person? We're working on prayer right now. God, do it my way now as fast as you can. It's okay. I got this completely under control. We're making progress, trust me. So let's review. We're studying Galatians 2.20 in depth and we're trying to push past the simple truths into some of the paradoxical realities that Paul knit into this very verse. And we're doing this not to rob this verse of how precious it is and how beautiful it is to us, but to increase the worth and the value of this verse and of the gospel in our lives. And so first, we're both dead and alive. The old self is dead and dying. The new self is alive and thriving. Jesus, second, was dead and is alive. Jesus died for us so that he could live in us. But last, this verse tells us something paradoxical about faith, something about believing. Now, technically, Paul doesn't write a paradox about faith into this verse. Okay, so the perfectionist in me has to let you know that. 
okay? But what he says about faith in this verse alludes to a biblical paradox about faith, and that, that paradox tends to violate the box and the boundary that I like to put faith in. Here's the paradox. should be on the screen behind me. Faith is both the resting from works and the energy for works. Faith is both resting from works and the energy for works. Look at, at, at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But don't think for a second that you're a robot. And three times, present tense, you're living. The living you now live in the flesh. You live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does Paul mean when he says, the life I now live, I live by faith in Jesus? Certainly part of what he is saying is that the paradigm for his life is justification by faith. Certainly part of what he is saying is that, 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 that the foundation of his life is being declared righteous by God uh, in Jesus apart from uh, his own works. But that's not primarily what Paul is saying in this verse. That's the box we like to put faith in. Faith is that, but faith is so much more than that. Paul is also saying I live life believing that the Son of God is in me. Paul is saying the life I now live, I live believing that Jesus has, can, does, and will live through me. Paul is saying that the life I now live, I live believing not just that at night I can remember that I'm forgiven for the sins I've committed and righteous in God's sight, but I can remember in the morning that in this day I'm empowered and indwelt for whatever comes about. Faith, on the one hand, is resting from works. In other words, I don't try to work and earn God's justification and acceptance and love and blessing, but on the other hand, faith is energy for works. Now that I'm justified and indwelt, I can work. I can love and serve and obey. If we endeavor to obey to get God to love us, that's works righteousness, that's not faith. But if we endeavor to obey God because God loves us, that's biblical faith. The dad, just before falling asleep, feels godly grief for not delighting in his kids, and he feels godly grief for being lazy. He confesses it, and like a good Presbyterian, he begins to rehearse the gospel, or at least he starts to. I'm forgiven because of Jesus' death. I'm righteous because of Jesus' life, and he falls asleep. The mom, his wife, just, just before falling asleep, feels godly grief for being so anxious about the future. And she feels godly grief because out of that anxiety, she began to overplan and she began to think so much about tomorrow that she, she didn't live in today. And so she begins to rehearse the gospel or she starts to. I'm forgiven because Jesus endured harder circumstances than me and he perfectly trusted the Father in those circumstances. He died for my sins. He gave me his righteous standing. She tells herself right before she falls asleep, you must remember who you are in the Father's heart. You're his daughter. You see, that's the box we live in. That's the box we put faith in. That is faith, but that's not all faith is. If faith is believing the promises of God, then faith is believing all of the promises, not just forgiveness, righteousness, acceptance, adoption, uh, perseverance of the saints, not just he's gonna keep you out of hell, but he's committed to making you beautiful. Faith is also the dad saying, not just I'm forgiven, I'm righteous, I'm adopted, I'm accepted, but he's saying I'm indwelt. 
The power of Jesus is mine to receive tomorrow as I face the same challenges I face today. Faith is also in the mom saying, not only am I precious in the Father's heart, but the Holy Spirit is in my heart. By faith, I can live in the moment tomorrow and not obsess about the next day. Actually growing in faith is this. It's the dad driving home from work, rehearsing the gospel. You're like, why would he rehearse the gospel? He hasn't blown it yet. Exactly. That's the box we put faith in. It's the dad driving home, rehearsing the gospel, imagining the old him not living that night. Imagining Jesus living in and through the new him as he plays with his kids, as he helps with the homework, as he cleans up the dishes, as he teaches his kids the Bible and prays with them, as he engages his wife in conversation, as he listens to her and encourages her and tells her not just you're forgiven and you're righteous and you're adopted and you're loved, but you're empowered and you're indwelt. You're a strong, peaceful woman in Jesus Christ tomorrow, with Christ in you tomorrow. You're a strong, peaceful woman. Faith is not just the businessman rehearsing the gospel after his business trip, telling him, I've repented, I've told my community, I'm forgiven, I'm technically righteous in the eyes of the Father. Faith in full is this. It's the businessman telling his community this before he leaves. The old me would have done X on this trip, but Christ in and through the new me can do Y on this trip. It would be very advantageous to me and very helpful to me if you'd pray to that end, if you'd encourage me to that end, if you'd preach the gospel to that end, if you'd celebrate that end with me when I return. Faith faith is resting from works on the front side of justification. Faith is energy for works on the back side of justification. We tend to pit faith and works against each other and then we think, well, what am I gonna do about the future? I can't work and I can't obey. That's the opposite of faith. And the Bible says, no, faith is the expression, uh, works is the expression of faith. Faith is the root and work is the fruit. The, The root is not just I'm forgiven, I'm righteous, I'm beloved, but I'm empowered. I'm a new creature. I'm getting better. If you don't believe me about this, listen to a few verses. Paul says in Romans 1.5 that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience from faith for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It couldn't be more clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of your works so that no one may boast. That's, That's resting from works. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created, here it is, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's energy for works. It's a paradox. It's both. You see, in Galatians 2, 20, when Paul says he lives in the present by faith, he means that he lives believing that the Holy Spirit is in him and that Holy Spirit is gonna bear fruit through him. And the reason that Paul doesn't die when the Holy Spirit moves in is because Jesus loved him and already gave up himself for him. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that your gospel is not just past tense, but is past, present, and future. We thank you that you did not just forgive us and leave us in the deplorable place of self-centeredness 
but that you forgave us and you declared us righteous and you adopted us and you sent the spirit of adoption into the inner parts of our being uh, to bear the fruit of love and selflessness through us. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not uh, leave the future up to us and our strength, but you have committed your very self and your spirit and your strength to us growing in the future. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and teach us these things and help us to experience these things. And I pray that you would stop us short of trying to solve the mystery, but enjoy the mystery that you're in us. That you live through us. May we be open to this. May we be excited about this. May we experience this. Jesus, we pray that you uh, would give us uh, better theology that we might move forward in fullness of life. In your name we pray.